0: I'm on my way to the Suncoast chapter uh, to deliver a presentation on the seven deadly sins of blogging, and I thought I would tell a little story around the presentation to give it more depth and meaning. I'm kind of nervous, actually, going to the Suncoast chapter because this is where I got my start in technical writing. This is where everything as it relates to technical writing began. I used to live in Florida about, oh it's been 2-3 years since I moved out of Florida. And when I first moved to Florida, I had just returned from Egypt and I was trying to break into professional writing. I started working as a copywriter for a while, and eventually I turned to technical writing and got my start at a company called Raymond James Financial which was a great place to start as a technical writer because there are about 10 other writers there and they had a good foundation for styles, for formatting, for how to interact with subject matter experts and and develop project plans. It was really the perfect environment. And while I was working there I I got introduced to the STC I first volunteered to be a webmaster because it looked interesting. And as I was a webmaster, I played around with WordPress, just out of purely experimental reasons. I eventually changed the site over to WordPress and tried to create a group blog. And I began posting my first blog entries to that website. Eventually I, I realized that the group blog thing doesn't really work unless you have an exceptional group of people who are just really dedicated to writing and contributing in that way but it didn't work and eventually I I branched off and created my own blog because I wanted to just post as much as I wanted without worrying that I was posting too much. And about a year after being a webmaster I our, our chapter president was leaving and she thought I would make a good replacement and so she recruited me into the position and I was the president for about 10 months before I left to Utah. And I guess I'm nervous coming back for two reasons. One, I'm nervous not about my presentation. Because I'm, I'm giving about the same presentation that I gave to the WebWorks Roundup on the 7 Deadly Sins of Blogging. But with a little different introduction. I'm nervous because I'm not sure... Uh, I, I'm nervous to see a bunch of people that I used to know to see old friends and see how people have changed or to see if I've changed or 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 to just I don't know meet them again and and I'm also nervous if they're not there. So if they're not there that that would also be kind of a downer because it would mean that uh, I don't know that they didn't care to see me or anything. So uh, there's little butterflies dancing in my stomach, but at the same time, I'm, I'm ready to present and to talk about blogging And if there's a completely new group there, great. If not, you know, that's great too But I, I also want to just add a few little notes about my style for presenting Because I've been giving a lot of presentations lately, at least a lot for me And I've had to define how I want to approach the presentations. My philosophy is to keep my slides very minimal. I I don't have any bullet points on any of the slides really at all. Maybe one slide, there's a list of of items. But other than that, they're mostly just pictures with a few title descriptions. And my philosophy is that I, I try to cover a few points on each slide. If I can, start out with a story of some kind. Then try to cover a few points because I'm never sure if the points that I will prepare on a slide are the same points that my audience is looking to know. Because I'm not there to give a presentation. I'm there to deliver information to a group of people. And as much as I can try to guess what kind of information the group of people will want, I really won't know. There's nothing... I hate worse than to go to presentation and find that the presenter is really fixed on presenting his slides, his or her slides, and getting through each of the slides and especially if the presenter has a ton of slides it can really be aggravating. I almost sit there and want to ask you know, who, who are you giving this presentation for? When you're done with your presentation I will come back and, and then we can talk because I have some questions that I'm not sure you're even going to address. So I try to keep my slides minimal so that I don't get locked in to a list of bullet points that may not fit what the audience wants to know. On the other hand, though, by keeping my slides minimal, I run the risk of running out of material or forgetting what I'm going to say. This is always a little fear inside me that I'll forget what I want to say. So I've actually made a list of notes on one page so that if I actually do forget what I want to say I've got the notes there to remind me think of something else to contribute or to add to that discussion. But really I've never actually had to refer to those notes. Sometimes I look at them just to make sure I'm not missing something. So that's been my, my philosophy of presenting. I wish I were a better presenter. I know that really powerful presenters have powerful stories that they tell, and they tell them in a great way, in a captivating, mesmerizing way. And that's, that's one direction I'm trying to move towards, is, is to emphasize story more. I think if I were to look at my life and everything around me, ...and trying to find a central point around which everything seems to revolve... ...it would be story. People People are drawn by this. It's what creates meaning. It's what gets people to listen. It's what people remember. It's what people walk away with. So, in as much as I can infuse my slides and presentation with really influential stories of some kind... ...stories that you remember... That really makes a good presentation. And I'm trying to develop my sense of being able to see story. Being able to see it where it doesn't seem to be readily apparent. That's a talent. And and I think I can develop it if I really focus my efforts there. So... That's about it. I'm going to the Suncoast chapter. It's where I got my start as a technical writer. I'm going to talk about blogging. It's where my blog started as well. I'm keeping my slides minimal. I'm excited to see old friends and we'll see how the night goes. So as Michael said, I, I used to be in this chapter two and a half years ago and I feel like I was coming home today as I was driving over here because I'm just on vacation out here really. Uh, But this is where a lot of my career in tech writing began. This is where I I discovered tech writing. It's my first chapter, introduction to the STC, and it's where I I got into blogging. I was actually uh, the chapter webmaster and I was just exploring the tools that are available in the web host's control panel, installed WordPress, kind of changed the site into a, into a blog, uh, CMS, and then eventually started my own blog and, and went from there. So uh, I love this chapter. I love the people in this chapter, some of these faces that, that I get to see. And so tonight I'm gonna talk about what I think are the seven deadly sins of blogging. So before I get started, how many of you guys have a blog? I'm just trying to get a better feel. One, two people have blogs. You don't have a blog, Mark. Well, well. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I, I thought you did have one. That's why I, I thought you may just have been shy. But I thought it was on your your plan, maybe. 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 Okay. I
1: blog. Well, I I could
0: contribute to other people's blogs. That's great.
1: Then yeah, sure, sure.
0: <laughs> and I know Christy has a blog too. So that's at least three. So for the for the people who don't have blogs. I don't know that my goal is to try to persuade you to start a blog, but let's say your company is thinking about have, starting a blog, or maybe they have a blog, I'm going to try to talk about the culture around blogging that are kind of these fundamental laws where if we, if we violate them, if we, if we run against these rules of the blogosphere, bad things happen. So, But first, Regina told me to talk a little bit about wikis, or asked me to talk a little bit about wikis and how they tie into blogs. How many of you guys know the difference between wikis and blogs just offhand? okay so a while ago our, our, our CIO said that he had this vision where 80% of the projects eventually would be uh, created, coded, documented by the community, community, which is a, an incredibly ambitious goal. And he, he has three strategies he wants to make it easy, he wants to, evangelize it so that people know a lot about it and are excited about it, and also just make employees feel comfortable. But how is it that you can really rally a community to participate on a wiki? How can you get them excited to to come to the wiki to check out code or to write and contribute? I think you you need a blog. That's really the mechanism that, that gets you there there's a concept known as the long tail have you have you heard of this concept I'm, it's pretty common right the long tail asserts that that if you take the the aggregate of your niche contributions or your niche sales they will equal more than the whole of the mainstream so in this in this little diagram here uh, there's also y- you may have heard of the long tail of sales like with Amazon but they sell these 1979 Grateful Dead mugs or something and that combined with a thousand other little niche products makes more than the top of the chart music CDs or something. But, but you can apply the same model to participation where if you have let's say uh, 200 writers and they each contribute like five hours, that total becomes more than just, uh, com- it becomes more than what your core group of writers would create. So with with these community sites, th- these wikis, if you get tons of people participating, it can actually be hugely influential. You can get a lot done. And um, this is how I see blogs and wikis fitting together. The the blog brings them, they find you through the search engines, they they hear about it, and then the blog advertises the wiki and they move to the wiki. So I work for, I'm in a unique position out in Salt Lake, so I work for the LDS Church's IT department, which has about 600 people. And we have these community projects that, that are on LDS Tech and we're trying to get people to move to them. Uh, and I made a little dumb animation there. But uh, okay. But but the problem is whenever you um, try to enter these, these social media spaces, whenever you try to introduce wikis, blogs, and you try to get the community things going, you really run into danger. Uh, there's so many kind of pitfalls that companies especially fall into that um, it's almost like there should be a big warning sign. And you've heard of the seven deadly sins, right? Lust, greed, wrath, sloth, and so forth. Well, the, the seven deadly sins of blogging, in my opinion, are being fake, being irrelevant, being boring, being unreadable, being irresponsible, being unfindable, and finally being inattentive. So I'm gonna talk about each one of these, and, and as we go on, I want to try to um, you know, answer questions that you have or, or find the information you're looking for and try to deliver it. So before we get started into being fake and, and, and that number one deadly sin, do you have any questions so far about blogging, wikis, or anything? Yeah.
2: Yeah, Tom, just, uh,
0: could you... Am I right in your way? Sorry, okay. No, I, okay.
2: Gonna, but just the relationship between the wiki and the blog, um, could you just elaborate on that? Yeah. A little vague on... So since we're going to focus on blogging, yeah,
0: I, I pretty much just use wikis as a segue to try to justify blogging because a lot of times people see it as one. How does it relate to documentation? But a wiki just as a basic definition is a page that anybody can edit, right? It's usually a collaborative project that people are always adding to. It's never really done. You're always adding information to it and people are maintaining it and it's sort of this living document. Uh, a blog, it, you you publish a post and then you go on to the next one, right? And people can comment below the post, but they're not changing the content of it. It's usually like a one-off thing, every post. And the way I see the relationship between the two is that the blog evangelizes a wiki. The blog is the community voice that attracts people to the wiki to come and contribute. The blog is kind of like the channel for news and updates and stories that try to vitalize and get get the community motivated and excited to contribute on the wiki.
2: Would you is it one and the same from a point of view technically?
0: Uh, are they the same technically? No, I mean there's there's some similarities but no, they're they're different technically. Uh, a common blogging platform is WordPress, Movable Type, Blogger, whereas wikis have a different syntax entirely different platform. You have MediaWiki, Confluence, Moin Moin, different platforms. And usually a wiki has a special little markup where an asterisk makes a bullet, uh, little equal signs make things into a heading, whereas blogs just use basic HTML and CSS and PHP. So, so
2: as you dive into this topic of blog, yeah, it really, it's you're, you're looking at it from the point of view of sort of pouring the gas, or, and, Light, yeah. light the
0: fire. Yeah. yeah, that's a good that's a good metaphor, pouring the gas to light the fire to you know okay. get people involved in this. Yeah. Right. Do you Wiki.
2: consider a blog and yahoo
1: group to be different beasties?
0: Like a yeah, do I consider like a Yahoo group listserv, an email distribution list different from a blog, is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, well, we're using we have, we have one for the T C blog. but i using that yeah. really post.
0: I mean, there's definitely elements of similarity in all Web 2.0 community tools, right? You have people participating and exchanging information. But a blog usually has a central, I mean, articles that are pushed out by, by one blogger or a group of bloggers. Whereas a listserv is usually just for discussion and, and people usually aren't, aren't putting a lot of effort into a, a listserv post usually, unless it's, you know, a critique or refutation or something like that of, of something.
1: Well, this is something of a
0: focus group with, on a specific project, so everybody is... Oh, okay. we
1: are probably using more
0: like that. Yeah, it more. Yeah, it could be that. Like, if you if you have a focus group where you have a site where you're posting something and then everybody comes and adds little comments below that, that's more blog-like. Yeah. So there's a lot of similarities in tools out there. So a lot of these rules, they could be broadly applied to any social media, not just blogs, right? But the number one rule is don't be fake. And, oh, before I get into that, though, uh, well, this ties in. Uh, w- when I think of social media, I just think of two planets, almost. You have the world of corporate social media, right, where you have a company involved, and then you have the world of independence. And they're very separate. They're very they're very distinct. Uh, and the, the main reason is, is this element of being fake. Um, it's very hard to believe a corporate blogger if the blogger is promoting the company's products. For example, if you go to a used car sales lot and the, the car salesman comes out and he says, you know, I've got a great car. You know, this one runs perfectly. Are you really gonna believe him? I mean, not really, because he's, he's obviously selling his, his cars. That's what he's trying to get you to buy. Why would you go there, though? <laughs> well, you would wanna do research, right? You wanna do research beforehand so you get other people's advice because if you go, let's say you go to a Honda salesman, he, and he tells you, yeah, Honda's really the best out there. I mean, of course he's gonna right. say that, he's trying to sell you a car. What could,
3: what could he say that would be
0: unfaithful? <clears throat> yeah, so this is the major dilemma, and this is why I think the company sphere is really different from the independent sphere, because if you're a company blogger, and you sell widgets, or whatever, let's say you sell alarm clocks or something, uh, what could you say on your blog that wouldn't come across in the same light as a used car salesman trying to tout his cars? So this is this is obstacle number one you have to overcome this and so there's various people who have, have, who have strategies one is, is some research by Forrester, a research company they claim that if you focus on people if you focus on the, your customers your users, the problems that they're having, their questions their concerns, that gets the focus off you so I mean, that kind of works. Have you, have you seen the Visual Lounge blog by TechSmith? You, you know TechSmith, right? Makers of Camtasia Studio, Snagit. So they have a blog called Visual Lounge. And, and in that blog, they try to showcase what people are doing with Camtasia Studio. They say, look, here's a video this company made. You know, check it out, these are the techniques they're using. So that, that's pretty good at, at kind of moving the focus away from themselves. There are also some industry expert type angles that I think work really well. Have you followed the uh, Cherryleaf, Ellis Pratt's Cherryleaf blog? Or Alan Porter's WebWorks? I mean, he works for WebWorks, but he's got his own blog, The Content Pool. Or Sarah O'Keefe's Scriptorium blog, Palimpsest. Have any of you read any of those blogs? I'm just curious. Wow, okay. Oh, some people. Okay, so some people are recognizing things. Well, in each of those blogs, uh the position that the bloggers take is more of like an industry expert talking about the latest trans issues commenting not necessarily trying to sell you their products you don't ever go to sarah o'keefe's blog and see her trying to push her xml publishing services on you right or or did a conversion or whatever it is that that she could sell Um, last week i was at webworks roundup actually in texas talking with alan porter who's the WebWorks uh, VIP of operation or VP of operations. And he told me that he has a policy that he never writes about his own products or his competitors' products on his blog, which is really interesting. A- and I hadn't thought of that. But when I did, he really never does really jump all over anybody's products, uh, not even his own. So <clears throat> that gives him credibility, though, because if he's not selling you his products and he's not you know, ripping on a competitor's products, he's talking about the latest news and whatever in the field um, it's more believable so so you can you can take those two angles to try to overcome it there's a there's a, have you heard of this guy named Stephen Fry so he's a big name especially in the UK he's a, he's like a film person yes question really sorry, but am i right in your way you're standing right sorry Okay, I'll kind of move back. I don't, I don't have a lot on my PowerPoints that is something you need to, need to see a lot of the times. It's mostly just little pictures as a backdrop. But this is a quote which, which is worthwhile. So Stephen Fry, he's a, f- he's a film producer, he's a literary critic, he's really uh, fun to listen to. And he's often asked to give quotes on books, review quotes. And he's got a blog, and in his blog he, he writes this sort of confession. He says he's, he's gonna come up with this plan. He says, the plan, as I told my agent, was to make this confession as a way of getting publishers off my back. And this confession is that uh, he hasn't read any of the books that he has reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> it may sound ungracious, but I get asked so many times a week to read book, read books and supply quotes for them that I'm getting a bit fed up. Not because I don't like reading, nor because I don't like being sent books, though mostly, of course, I'm sent proof copies rather than the finished article. No, what I'm fed up with, and it is my contention that I am so not alone in this, is seeing my name on the fronts, backs, and flaps of books say, saying things like, a beautifully paced, unforgettable thriller, a magnificent feat of imagination, a delicate, delicately realized and vividly felt journey through memory and desire, etc, etc. Yuckety, yuckety, yuck, pukety, pukety, puke. So he, he's... He's kind of bearing his own feelings in this post about how he hates reviewing books and putting these little snippets on book jackets. And this sort of frank honesty is something that you need in your blogs, in in the social media sphere to really get the audience's attention. And it's really hard sometimes because especially if you're a company blogger, uh, you may hate your product. You may think it sucks, right? But you can't really, you have to find a, a way to be transparent and to, to achieve that authenticity. That's why I say that the the uh, world of independent bloggers and, and company bloggers is like two different planets. Because with independent blogs, you, you can be a lot more frank. You can say what you want, as long as uh, you're not really putting your company in, in a bad light, which is something we'll get to later. Any questions about being fake that we want to get into? So yeah. Have
2: you just written off the whole corporate blogging?
0: No, no. I, I say, well, Kathy Sierra has a good, she, she's a person who is well-known in the Java community. She says the worst mistake that a business blogger can do is to blog about the business. So I think if you're a company blogger, your worst mistake can be to just blog about your products because you'll end up recycling marketing material. Instead, I recommend that you blog about things that are going on in your field that would be of interest to users or blog about your users and the, what they're doing
2: that said, yeah. if they take that approach then you're only talking about one category of blogging. Being genuine, so it doesn't matter where you're writing from whether it's yeah. corporate or individually. If, as a corporate blogger, to be believable, you're an individual. Yeah, yeah. You're speaking honestly. Yeah. You're not even, in a sense, you're just writing from within your domain address of a company, but if you're being to what you just said, Mm-hmm. really being an individual who happens to work at whatever
0: company. Yeah, so I, I agree that, that yeah, you, you're better off being an individual than re- trying to represent your company as a whole. And, and for example, Edelman PR, they're, they're a company where the, I don't know, I don't really follow that blog, so I probably shouldn't use it as an example, but he's like the voice of the company. Some companies choose a blogger to be their voice. Other companies have group blogs, and I really don't think those work very well. But if you uh, if you try to think of company blogs that you follow versus independent blogs, I guarantee you that you probably will come up with a, a much longer list for the independents. TechCrunch, for example, or I mean these really popular ones, even Leo Laporte and his podcast. You don't think of things like following IBM's blog or following Microsoft's blog, right? So you're really at a disadvantage. But and I'm not saying those are the only two routes: focusing on the users or focusing on other things. You you can add tips and news releases and information about your product. I'm just saying you lose some cr- trust and credibility if you, if you want to try to uh, you know, persuade people to them. Mark, you have a thought on your son? I song.
1: do have a thought. I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here, and, I, and maybe this is an old guy coming out, but I, I back in when I first got my first job, I got a job actually tech writing is um, working at a nuclear waste site. It's Prior <laughs> to that in college. I wrote an article that got a Hearst Award. It was an inflammatory anti-nuclear article. Hmm. A friend of mine had recommended that I get this job based on that. And I had to kind of soft shoot past it. I had the benefit of the fact that this was an analog presentation in a newspaper. Hmm. My thought is this. If you're out there being blatantly honest about things, stuff you put out on the web, out on the internet world, it lives forever. <laughs> so down the road, when you're going to go find a job with somebody, and then they do a Google yeah. on your name, and all of a sudden, your scathing <clears throat> honesty comes up. Means, yeah. There's a yin and yang. I was just curious if you'd comment on that, the balance.
0: Yeah, let's let's jump into that. I, that's actually a later sin, but I won't, we'll just skip ahead to that. Because it's, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I don't want to wait. Okay. So that would be what I'm calling. Now, I don't know whether you agree with this, but I'm calling this being somewhat irresponsible. So... Mark's example is that, let's say he writes an anti, or, or, or anti-inflammatory, he writes an inflammatory article about nuclear waste, right? And then later he maybe wants to apply it to a nuclear waste facility as a technical writer. And they look and they see, no, you know, you were way too honest. You should have been, you should have muted that, right? Well, this is where I think you can get into trouble, is if you, you represent a position that conflicts with the position of your company. My blog is on Techcom, so it's really kind of a safe territory, right? No company usually cares about this, unless I worked for a help authoring tool. There was a guy named Chez Pazienza, who uh, was a CNN producer, and he had a blog on politics. And as a CNN producer, he's supposed to be somewhat objective, right? CNN's a conservative, objective news agency, so they, they want their people who work for them to be news reporterish type people. But on his blog, he was somewhat radical. Uh, he had more, maybe more liberal opinions or more s- strong opinions, and then he got fired. And uh, so I thought, wow, at first, he, he must just be ranting about his boss, or maybe he's posting something that's really inappropriate. But actually, what he was posting was really quite uh, articulate, polished, you know, good thoughts that that were interesting to read. But the fact is that he had a strong news bent that conflicted with his company. So, if you work for a company, you may not want to blog about topics that would get you into trouble with that company. And if you're thinking about working for a company in the future, you may not want to blog about topics that will get you into trouble with that. Fortunately, it's not really that much of a predicament depending upon what you're blogging about. Because for example, let's say you're blogging about technical communication. What company is going to take issue with that? I mean, unless you're working for Robo or Adobe or something, and previously you were a big Flare proponent, right? There's really not a whole lot that's going to get you into trouble. You know, if you're working for a financial company, they could care less whether you're blogging about Flare, RoboHelp, or anything um, related to help authoring issues. It's
3: not related to what you're saying, but perhaps you could. <laughs> I'm that you can't possibly sit on the table but <coughs> sure. it's hard to sure. see.
0: Okay. Thank you. Well this is just two old men that are bickering about something. So, <laughs> so the other Thank yeah, you. when it comes to irresponsibility though, there's some other, other points you have to consider. Let's say you, you don't really have any issues with misrepresenting your company or, or being in odds with them but somebody pays you to write about something. Uh, uh, do you have to disclose that? I actually have this issue right now. It's not really an issue, it's just the situation. Somebody paid me some money to write about a new product they created, and I was like, great. You know, I'd be happy to do this and post it on my blog. But the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has actually come out, I believe I have this, yeah, with a new policy just in October. It says, while decisions will be reached on a case-by-case basis, The post of a blogger who receives cash or in-kind payment to review a product is considered an endorsement. Thus, bloggers who make an endorsement must disclose the material connections they share with the seller of the product or service. Let me get some water here. So what this means, basically, is that if somebody pays you money to write about a product, you have to disclose it. So in my review of this cool online chess application, I'm gonna have to say, look, you know, uh, despite the fact that I've been raving about this, I was paid so, you know, you can basically write off everything I said. <laughs> no, uh, so it's gonna, it's gonna make it more difficult, right? Because you have to be transparent about any kind of material connections. And you can actually be fined up to like $11,000. I don't know if anybody's been fined, but it's, it's a new kind of policy that's somewhat strict.
2: The moment you mentioned TechCrunch, I mean that's what immediately came to mind because I don't go to TechCrunch much because they're thinly veiled, you know, press releases—two, <laughs> three things that you know announce, announce, announce—and then the guy slaps his opinion uh, on the bottom. And, you know what? I don't need every idiot's opinion. Yeah. And and I go and look at the original press release, and he's changed a few words, maybe. Yeah. That, that's it. Uh, you know,
0: it so. So, so, what if you're okay, so TechCrunch is a great example. What, let's say, what if you're Guy Kawasaki, who's kind of in the same area there, blogging about these technologies, new startups? What if he's he's, venture, he's a venture capitalist that's putting up money for a company and he blogs about it and says, oh, this is an awesome company? Does he have to then say at the bottom, you know, by the way, I'm, a, I'm the backer of this company financially? Well, he does now. <laughs> yeah, he does. Now. he does. He does. He does.
3: He had a website, if he just had a plain vanilla website. And on it, people could write back to him. And he said, I make money at this website. And one of the, I mean, a blog is basically a place where you're giving away freebies. You're, yeah. You're being this friendly, that's that's your marketing strategy, Uh uh-huh. to be this friendly giveaway person. I don't think you can actually be getting paid for what you put on a blog.
0: Well, there's.
1: If you have advertisements
3: on blog. But that's that's really furnishing the
0: engine. So you're against the whole ethics of being paid to write a post for but something. I've never
3: against being paid to write. <laughs> but I mean for, <laughs> as a blog, as a blog. Uh, never. never. And masquerading it as a blog. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I think if you're saying a blog that is this, you know, kind of forward-thinking, yeah. The shared community experience, or yeah, you know, all of that—you can't at the same time, be, as this man said. You know, taking people's press releases in and, t- and putting your
0: yeah. So def- definitely, in. definitely, if 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 you're a blogger and you're really a disguised public relations person, it can get you into trouble. And f- there's another example. I can
3: see them running around from <laughs> blog to
0: blog checking. Uh, a few years ago. Uh, there was this new blog that popped up called Walmarting Across America Walmarting Across across America and it was this uh, travel log of two people in an RV who decided to travel across America looking at all the Walmarts and kind of describing their experiences with them and a little while later it came out that this was really a publicity stunt uh, sponsored by Walmart and coordinated through Edelman PR and after that people hated it people got really furious because I mean it was fake and it was also, it was like this, this example of something that's materially backed and it What's is kind of... <laughs>
1: from one Walmart to the next?
2: Well, this one's got a door.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine, I imagine, I don't know what they would write about them, really.
2: Were you editorializing on that ruling? No. Like it was bad or
0: good? Uh, no, I think that, um, I think this is a good thing. Um, there are some big blogs who I think get away with a lot of stuff that I don't know about. So it's kind of nice to think that uh, they're going to have to kind of pony up to this this rule.
2: Just just the example of mm-hmm. uh, guy Kawasaki. Yeah. Very well known. His opinion carries a lot of weight in the deep yeah. world from a lot of years of work he's done, and he's done a lot of good public stuff. If he isn't, if he's <coughs> doing uh, venture capital something. And he promotes a company. You can bet he's going to influence a lot right. of people yeah. to possibly look at that company if he doesn't disclose it. Yeah. You know, I mean, just like now when you listen to the nightly business report, right. they ask, you know, you advise buy this or that stock, and they have to now disclose if they have any material interest. Mm. It only makes sense that that would be the case.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah. Y- y- some people have said that that really the currency of the blogosphere is your influence. It's, it's, you know, a blog, you don't get paid a lot, but you have influence over people. You have their attention. And if you're, if you're, if you're really just masking PR, then that's problematic. Uh, there was a, a book recently on Sarah O'Keefe's blog, she reviewed Anne Gentle's conversation and community book. And she actually had a disclosure right in her post that said, I've met Anne a few times and I reviewed early drafts of her book. And I read that and thought, well, why do you have to disclose that? That's not really that's not really something you'd have to disclose. And yet it was it I appreciated it because it just made me believe her more. I reviewed Anne's book as well, but I didn't put the fact that uh yeah, she sent me a free copy or uh, this link is actually pointing to my Amazon affiliate page, right? Where if you buy I get some return. Maybe I should have. So it, it kind of puts more more rules on <laughs> You Amazon has an affiliate program where if you you can code the link to go to your own Amazon page Where if you sell if people click to that site through yours you get a little bit of return so theoretically uh, You know that could be Yeah, yeah, so So this this poses more kind of responsibility on bloggers It's just trying to get them to be more upfront and more more journalistic, I guess, uh, in disclosing all kinds of these things. But I think while we're talking about, uh, this is more uh, another controversial point, but while we're talking about responsibility, sensationalism is also something a lot of people kind of fall prey to. Uh, It's very easy to take an extreme position on something, knowing that you'll get get a lot of attention because of it, uh, to really promote one sort of thing because you think that it will insight um, activity around your blog. Last year I had a poll on my blog about whether technical writing was a sellout or fallback career. And, um, I didn't word it very well obviously, but these were the ter- these were terms that some students at BYU-Idaho were kinda saying about technical writing. They didn't think it was a good career, right? They thought it was a sellout, fallback career. So I wanted to come up with some research from professionals in the field saying, yes, you know, we we agree or no, we disagree, and the tech writer, the tech world listserv just went wild with this poll. They thought I was a discussion troll. I never heard that term before uh, It' was basically somebody who just creates controversy to get attention and, and get traffic get site, site visits and <clears throat> they really went to town on this, and it made me think there's a lot of bloggers out there who are trying to get attention so they take an extreme position and in some cases, that's a, that's a rhetorical strategy, right? You, you over-exaggerate your position because you're trying to get people's attention. On the other hand, it is a sense of, uh, it, it, it's somewhat of a, a dishonest, irresponsible sort of position to go that extreme just to try to get attention. So avoid sensationalism, disclose all your, your monetary sources, represent your company well, and you'll avoid that sort of sin. Should we go back? Or do you you guys wanna talk about that more? Yeah, so sin number two is being irrelevant. And this this piggybacks on sin number one, which was um, being, being fake, because in sin number one, I said company bloggers should really avoid blogging specifically about their products. But sin number two is you have to be relevant to the user. So if a user is using a specific product, right, you still have to be relevant to that person, it becomes a little more difficult. But I like to think of relevancy as a road you're following. And this is a, a metaphor my friend Heidi Hansen shared with me. Um, a road or like a trail, right? You can take little offshoots, but you have a contract with the reader to stay on the road. People expect you to follow a, a specific topic. You can't just blog about anything all the time. You have to have a focus and you're gonna attract readers based on that focus. And you you only keep them if you continue with that focus. You can't just blog one day about politics and the next day about finance, the next day about religion, the next day about technology and hope to keep readers. Penelope Trunk, who has a blog (coughs) called The Brazen Career, she's one of my favorite bloggers. She says, in the history of writing, everything has a focus. It's a contract you have with the reader. You stay within the bounds of the reader's expectations, and if you do that, you can write surprises that seem to stray from your topic, and the reader stays with you, because surprises are fun. But if there's no contract, because there's no focus, then there are no surprises. Every great piece of writing works this way. Has anybody here read Penelope Trunk's blog? It's a great blog. It's on like career strategies, things like that. And she, she gives the example of Moby Dick, right? This is a long book. There's lots of little philosophical side shoots, but it's about a guy who's chasing a whale, and it's got a central theme of revenge, right? And, and so your blog needs to be somewhat like that. You can take these side trails, but you really have to continue going down the same path. Now, if you're thinking of starting a blog, this is usually where people get caught up, they, or they get stopped, because they're like, well, what should I blog about? <laughs> what should the focus be? Not tech writing, I do that all day, right? So, and maybe music or something. Kevin Venn, uh, he, he's got a music blog. He's Kevin a, one. Kevin Venn, he's, he's in our field. He's a content strategist or a web developer guy. And He's got a blog about music, totally different because that's what his passion is. But I usually tell people, look, don't worry about a focus for your first 30 days. Crank out posts for a whole month and whatever you naturally kind of fall into, then pick that focus.
3: Is same true a voice?
0: A voice? Right. Yeah, sure, I, I, I think, uh, I mean, I don't know how many voices you can have, but...
3: <laughs> I mean, you expect somebody who's always going to be cranky or always yeah. going to be, uh, ironic yeah. or humorous, or, so when that person throws in something very solemn, you're... Yeah. That's you know, not a surprise you sort of think like, I didn't come here for this.
0: Have you have you heard have you heard of uh, have you if you've ever heard the Leo Laporte uh, this week in tech podcast? There's a guy on his show who's a regular co-host named John Dvorak, and he is like the cranky geek. That's his that's his stereotype. So he really has this cranky voice. He's always he's always the pessimist. He's always the, the antagonist in the conversation. So yeah, that's his voice. I don't know whether he's really like that in person because he'd be kind of annoying. Yeah, he's funny, he's hilarious, but he's got. He
1: like human, you know, <laughs> yeah. Computer
0: yeah.
2: jokes.
0: Yeah. So, but that 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 could be something that you're trying to find as well. I hadn't really considered that. Um,
2: is that is it true of all? I mean, just about all blogs that they stay to a single topic.
0: And it de- yeah, is it true that all blogs stay to a single topic? No, I mean obviously there's there's people who would violate this we're rule otherwise.
2: About, we're talking about. You're saying this is not a successful strategy. Yeah. Just it's, it's splatter. Yeah. But are there successful blogs that do go all over?
0: That? I I can't really think of many. There there are lots of bloggers that that really have a wide range of things they blog about. But one time I decided that I was done with the tech com focus of my blog and I would just blog about whatever I wanted to, and it only took me like three days before I realized that. I can only write well about something that I know well. And since I'm immersed in tech comm all day and have experiences doing that, and I read about that, it comes naturally that, that would be the focus of my blog. So I think that people, even if they do splatter, um, they're really, you're gonna come back to what you know and, and it's gonna be the focus of what you write about. Uh, for better or for worse, whatever, but uh, I can't think of any, any blogs that have a wide focus that uh, are just all over the place. The general technology blogs, I mean, they're still about tech, but they, a lot of them have slants about, you know, what's new in this. That's really a good focus, actually. If you're trying to find a focus, try to pick, about, pick the news of, of your field and comment on that because there's a steady stream of it. You know, always stuff that you can comment on, especially in this day and age. Um, All right, let's move on from that. So, sin number three is being boring. And this is the hardest, this is actually the most interesting one to me. Because, um, (laughs) how to overcome overcome being boring. So, I I was trying to do some research on this. I said, okay, let me find what is generally recognized as the most boring material on earth. So I grabbed the TechCom Journal, because you know, it's got a reputation. And I started flipping through the articles, and I said, okay, I'm gonna read this one and figure out what it is that makes something boring. And you know, there's lack of complete lack of personalization, no I, no personal experiences. Uh, lots of kind of belaboring the point, uh, describing the process and all kinds of background before they really get to any kind of point. Um, But overall, I decided that when you take a, and this is probably not fair to academic journals because that's their standard, right? Is to take away the personal. But when you take away the personal from from a blog, it really deflates it by and large. And it's because when you inject the personal into something, you often inject story into it. And story is really what carries something through. I'm not saying the personal always has to be stories from your own life. Uh, Anything really, that has a conflict that somebody's trying to overcome could be considered a story. Because uh, that's really the essence of a story. I mean, you have a protagonist, there's some kind of conflict. Usually the protagonist changes to come to overcome the conflict. But you can look at a lot of things out there as as this kind of setup. Um, not just personal experiences. <clears throat> Let me see if I have a quote here. Oh, yes. so the more story you can add, the more appeal you're going to generate in your posts. So when I try to write, I try to, whoops. Uh, okay, when I try to write, I try to think of something in terms of, of a story. And the way that, and I don't always do this, but it's my goal, um, to try to identify what is a problem that somebody's trying to overcome. And for example, in the previous posts that I wrote the other day, uh, I was trying to write about branding yourself and uh, it, reinventing yourself through your blog because this is kind of an idea that I was thinking about while I was at WebWorks. So I tried to begin it from the, from the problem that, that it's so easy to become branded with a specific kind of idea, like Tom is a blogger podcaster, right? And being stuck with that brand and trying to figure out how do you get yourself out of that position to reinvent yourself in another, another light. So I try to approach it from kind of a story angle. And I think if you, if you do that, even with a product, let's say you're reviewing a product, you say, this wiki uh, is great, here's the main thing it solves. This allows you to upload files or something so that you can have free access to your environment. Anyway, if you can inject story, I think it makes it a lot less boring. Um, and I'm trying to think. There's a great a good example is powar.com, If you've read John Hewitt's blog, so he was writing some some stories about his career, about the career of technical writing. And he he start, he wrote them as if they were short stories basically, and he intertwined his uh, some theory and ideas into them as well. And they're really engaging. I wish he wrote more of them, but instead I think he, he's more into fiction and poetry and things like that. But but if you look for his series on, on a career of a technical writer, they work because he puts a lot of story in them. Uh, actually, my background is, is in English. I got a BA in English, and then I got a, a degree in literary nonfiction. And if there's one thing I learned from my program, it's that when you combine the, the personal with the professional, meaning like experiences, story with ideas and abstract, professional ideas, and you marry those two, it makes something really come alive. So that is what will keep your posts from being boring. Any questions or comments or thoughts about, about that? There's not, not really a whole lot to say about story, but, but if I were to think, I mean, if you think about what interests you, like let's say you're listening to a talk by somebody, wh- wherever, in a, in a community setting, uh, at work, when the person starts telling the story, people listen. When they stop, people lose attention. It's just the way things work. It's the way we're wired for meaning.
3: Um, did you
0: say um, John Hewitt? Yeah. How do you spell it? H-E-W-I-T-T. Yeah, he's, powar.com is his blog. It's a good blog. So, um. Did you say P-O-E? P-O-E. I think it's no, Poetry Writing Resource or something. I don't really know what it stands for. Poe War. So, Scene number four is being unreadable. A while ago, um, Scott Abel of the Content Wrangler asked me to help move his blog to WordPress. And the way I usually work when I do WordPress stuff is I say, okay, pick out a theme that that comes closest to what you're looking for and we will modify it to make it uh, look all the way what you want. So I picked out this theme and it's a cool looking theme. I mean it's got like visual appeal at the top and little thumbnails and columns. But the more I looked at it and the more I kinda came back to it, something really bugged me about this theme. Is there anything that jumps out at you as being annoying about this theme? This WordPress site? This one here. Yeah, this is the site. This is the default theme in other words.
2: What's Would important. you define
0: theme? It's uh, like a ready-made skin, so to speak, for a site. A template. Yeah, oh. template.
1: You got the department of redundancy department going here. You got one picture, three, times, <laughs> the <two laughs> one twice.
0: Yeah. Well, this is just a sample content, though. <clears throat> but if you look past the redundancy, good point, though. Okay, there, that's that. And that's one of the problems with it. There's too much content. This is, but also... This is very small. It may be hard to see this here um, because it's a image and it's shrunk. But the text is way too small. And I don't know how many times I've seen a site where it looks like the designer must have eagle eyes. It's just like this little tiny font, and it, and uh, and yeah, the gray background as well makes it hard for, for seeing the contrast. Is
1: that
0: long text? Ye- uh, yeah. Yep. lower ripped some stuff. So there's been a lot of studies on typography. Smashing Magazine at smashingmagazine.com did a study on typography, and they found that if you have a font size between 12 and 14, that works really well. They actually analyzed like 50 of the most popular sites online and tried to figure out what, what they're doing right, as if they're you know Paragon examples of typography and design. But, so but they came... So
3: much nine font. <laughs> I don't don't know. know. And when you try to print it out, it's awful.
0: In fact, I I mean, I probably shouldn't mention this, but if you go to WebWorks' newly redesigned site, the font is tiny. I can barely read it. I have to, like, you know, hit control plus to zoom it in. Um, But but basically, jack up the font size, right, so that it's readable in a comfortable way, so that you can lean back and read it. And if you look at a lot of other sites, for example, uh, I love typography. This font, if you go to the ilovetypography.com, is actually 16 pixel font. Another thing you'll notice is that the column width is a lot narrower. Newspapers have narrow columns for a reason. It's because it makes it easier to read. And the ideal length is apparently about two and a half of your alphabets, or like 55 to 75 characters. Uh, It's interesting, they said that, that classic studies in typography say 55 to 75 but most of the sites they studied were all at like 75 to 80 in width and i think that's because it's it's hard to fit a photo or a video in something that's really narrow and and this multimedia is really important in the appeal and allure of your site there's some other elements white space there's a paradox with white space If, if as you take elements away and and simplify it, think of Tiffany's for example, it actually makes it seem more elegant or more refined or like Apple designs. This minimalism actually increases the appeal. Um, Did somebody have a comment? Uh, I've got a few other elements that I've listed on the side here. Line height is something, how much, that refers to how much space between each line. And Smashing Magazine actually has some kind of formula where if you divide the the font size of the body copy by the line length, it should equal 1.48 or something. But basically, it it comes out to around 19 pixels of line height. Typefaces, they found that uh, Arial and Verdana were pretty common. And that if people use Sans Serif fonts, that Georgia. Bingo. Or Serif fonts, sorry. That that you would use Georgia.
1: Isn't it still the rule of thumb that you use for text sans serif?
0: Yeah, yeah, but apparently in their study they found that about 30% used used serif fonts. Uh, But basically, use a font that doesn't jump out at the reader. You want your design to kind of be like the design at a museum, where the walls don't call attention to themselves. The walls are somewhat bare. The attention is on the content, on the paintings hanging on the walls. Um, that comes from somebody I can't remember but basically you, the design should be somewhat invisible and I have a quote by Guillermo no? no I don't have a quote by Guillermo I have it in my mind he, he says the design should support the content not bring attention to itself um, and that's about it does anybody have any comments or questions about Christy? I do, I'm wondering how
1: much time do you spend tweaking things like that like uh-huh. how, how satisfying
0: You know, how much time do I spend tweaking things like this? I, I, I don't spend that much time, but when I'm working on a site, on a, I do freelance web WordPress design in my, in my spare time, which doesn't really exist. <laughs> but when I, when I do, I spend a lot of time trying to make the font more readable. And, and usually, um, I'm, I don't know why, but most designers really have tiny font and it stretches across a super long column. This is actually one of my contentions about wikis that bugs me. Is that most wikis, for example, Wikipedia, the the text spans 200 characters across. You know, it's this liquid length based on your browser's width. And it bugs me because it's hard to read and it makes things look really bad when you you have a paragraph that's like all the way across and then another paragraph, it's like, what? You know, uh, anyway. But uh, you can spend a long time trying to tweak these. If you know CSS, it, it can make it really fun. And if, you, if you're just trying to get your handle on this, there's a couple of extensions that make it super easy. Uh, the web developer extension for Firefox or Firebug, both of them, really they enable you to see all the, the, the CSS properties of the content, and you can actually change them on the fly and kind of massage your site. Did you the name of that? Web developer extension, as well as Firebug. Most you just
3: jumped on. You, you wanted to start writing your blog. Yeah. Your blog. You didn't have a lot of experience with things like that. Yeah. Did it take a lot, a lot, to make it not terrible?
0: Or? No, no. I mean, if you, does it take a lot to fix it? No, because some some CSS settings are very basic. For example. I want to tell
1: people. I mean, I know what CSS is, but I'm willing to bet you have people who's really just
0: it's the, sorry, it's the style, okay. Style sheet. Yeah, it's the style sheet that is applied to the HTML code that tells the HTML or tells the web, the browser, how big to display the font, how how wide the column should be. Every, almost everything on the web is, is styled with this. If you go to CSS Zen Garden, okay. you can see how changing the style sheet can change the entire site, the way it looks. And, and
1: if you're mm-hmm. the, to me it's... It enables you to impose your will on the yeah. The it gives of your
0: content. it gives you a, an incredible amount of uh, control over that. It, it's it's really useful. If you use RoboHelp, if you use Flare, if you use almost any help authoring tool that has HTML, you probably have a style sheet that you're you're tweaking. So you may have already worked with it. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Do you mind my offer comment? Go for it. All stuff that you go for it. Because I've known you for like, four or five years now, and I always think of you as in the society, you're getting a reputation as being this avant-garde, you're the next um, next generation guy, like Neil Perlman type, that's always mm. on the cutting edge. And I, thinking back on the presentation, there were two individuals that were having a discussion <coughs> about, at the time, web content. Effectively, you're talking about the same thing. You're talking about delivering delivery the content. One fellow was named Roger C. Parker. This this guy? is actually a little bit older than me, and he wrote some books back in the 70s and 80s called like, Looking Good in Print. And okay. He really was a definitive two, two dimensional guru about creative use of white space, placement of pictures, you know, the concept hmm. of having a person always look into the page, and all these subtle nuances. And then the other fellow spoke uh, was a young Jared Spool. Okay. And Jared Spool stood up there, and he said, I don't care what you cram onto a page or what size it is. As long as your links reconcile, everything's copacetic, as far as I'm concerned. And mm-hmm. he was up there espousing, like, the Wired magazine. That was about the time Wired came out, where he had the chartreuse text with the lime green background mm-hmm. and the readability. It was shot for those of us who, you know, it offended those of us from old school. And I hear you, as always as thinking of you as a new age guy, coming back and embracing some of the Roger C. Parker type hmm. fundamentals and it does my heart good.
0: <laughs> so uh, let me see if I understand what, kind of what you're saying. You're saying one, one guy is just kind of anti-design. We'll focus on the content and don't worry about the design. The other guy is like, well no, you gotta, you know, look at all these different factors that, that makes it an effect on how people read it and so forth. You know, uh, my thought is that people I've read this before. People come to a site; they make a, a really fast impression, almost like 50 milliseconds. They're forming an impression, and if your site doesn't look professional, I think their initial impression is is going to be uh, less favorable. So, so you have the impression on the reader that even if your content is terrible, if it looks like a professional site, they're probably going to uh, you. You may have more authority with them, but I don't know. I I I hadn't really. I, I hadn't heard of the guy who was just, you know, uh, didn't care about anything with design. The young Jared Spool, it, was it Jared Spool? Jared Spool. Oh, it was oh I Jared thought you said Spool. a young Jared Spool. No, it was Jared Spool. Oh, ah, okay. Much younger
1: man, it was back in 98. Oh, ah, okay. And he was, you know, he's of course well, he got a global uh, reputation.
0: Have you ever been to Jacob Nielsen's site? Yep. Some designers just write him off because his site looks so basic. It's, it lacks appeal, visual appeal. I mean, it's got big font. And it stretches all the way across the page, but uh, not a lot of, it doesn't look aesthetic. So I don't know, I, I think the content, I mean the focus should be on the content. And if something detracts because it's so ugly, then you know that's another, another thing to consider. But thanks for bringing up that point. It's an interesting contrast. I have a quote from Sonia Simone, copy blogger. This is a great site by the way, especially if you're a copywriter. But she talks about the importance of subtitles, or subheadings, sorry. She says, blog and newsletter readers want meaty content, something that's worth the time they take to read it. But piling a mountain of words in front of readers doesn't work too well. A page of solid black text looks like, well, work. So in front of your 20-foot tall stack of words, you put a series of steps. You break your content into manageable pieces, separated by mini headlines or subheads. Each subhead is a step up the staircase. Each time your reader comes to another subhead, she thinks, well, I'll just read to that next little headline there. Then she reads another section and another. Subheads break your copy into little potato chip tasty bites. And we all know how hard it is to stop at just one potato chip. Especially with online content, you really need to put a lot of subheadings. uh, Because unless your your page is short, 400 words or so, um, people, People don't read things long. Uh, I recently really wrote a post about how length doesn't matter, that if, if you, you know, use story and if you've got engaging media there, you can be as long as you want. But hardly anybody ever comments on my long posts. so it makes me think that either I'm really boring <laughs> or it's just not true that people need shorter chunks, and, and it's probably you know both there.
3: How can you test long?
0: Well, some of my posts are like 1,500 words and, and a lot of times I don't get any comments at all. And I think either people didn't read it or they just did You didn't. get
3: analytics about how long someone's on your site?
0: Yeah, but that's hard to tell on a per-post basis. You can, for example, if you use Google Analytics, right. I think it tells me the average time on my site is a minute and a half. That means somebody could have left the window open for, you know, all day and another person clicks in and bounces away. And I don't really know how to, how to tell the truth from that. But I think people don't spend more than two minutes per page, or I mean per, per site. People like to click around. So you can break your content up into like a series of posts, or you can actually put a little, little numbers at the bottom, like one, two, three, and then they don't see this giant chunk of text, even with subheads, right? It's still a big, long chunk of text. You break it up and you trick them, you do series. Uh, but but somehow you know brevity is is almost the essence of the web. People people like to get to the point really quickly.
2: Uh, I'll just give an anecdotal, yeah. anecdotal uh, statement here in terms of today. I was looking. Uh, there's an e-zine by a uh, sales writer a guy named Jeffrey Gittimer, Um and it's a really cool site. He, he sells <coughs> sales training. Of all And he's written the little red book of sales, whatever. And he's very popular. And he has a great easy, and he breaks it up. And I was reading an article that he had a bunch, all broken up into short columns. Follows a lot of the rules we, you've been talking about. And it said, if you want to read more. Well, this article had me hooked, and I clicked on it, and it went for a screen and a half. And it was interesting, and I had no problem reading the whole thing because it was interesting. Yeah. So it, it, you know, the old thing, <laughs> you write as long as you can keep people interested. Yeah, and you've got to use your own personal judgment in that. But this guy had me interested, and I read the whole thing. I wouldn't always do that if it was all on one. Yeah, you know, and, and I think there's some, probably some, gimmicks you can use to break up. You know, mm-hmm. an article like you say, numbers one, two, three, four, five, or whatever, <clears throat> and I've I followed those when it was interesting. Uh, well, but you know, we, mm-hmm. that, those first impression. If I look down and I don't see any topic headers or anything that grabs me, I'm gone.
0: <laughs> that's that's good, good, a, know, one, good comment. One thing journalists yeah.
2: do is they backload articles. I mean, despite what you're told in in school, not everything's in the front paragraph. You know, three bodies found in in, you know, somebody's backyard. And where do you get the information? It's down at the bottom of the second page. Yeah. The rest is all this fluff, and so they set up the story, and then they get to the, the 3 lines Yeah,
1: but of the field. fundamentals of putting the inverted pyramid and writing in that spot, don't you, I mean, look at all the newspapers that are folding now. To me, you, this, this media is, is what's becoming the next generation's uh,
0: newspaper. Uh, there's actually, somebody published a really interesting analysis of web formats. Previously, they said you either had to write like a, a magazine-length article, so 2,000 words or like 800 words, or it had to be a book. There was, really wasn't a whole lot of middle ground. Blogs, might, I actually have a series of posts on the Seven Deadly Sins. It's probably about 25 pages if you were to add them all up. There's really no, like before the web came out, there's really no place for something of middle ground length. And I like, I like web formats because you kind of put aside the question of length. It's as long as it needs to be. You don't, you're don't. you not constrained to produce 50,000 words because that's the minimum requirement to have a book. You know, and then you, how many times have you opened a book and like three sections are just padding. It's just like, oh, this basics. Yeah, so and that's, right? it's, I hate that. And that's one of the reasons I actually don't like reading books as much because they, I feel like a lot of it's padding and they could just get to the point. Right. So there's a lot to, to talk about that, but.
3: I think I a short blog shows respect for the reader. Yeah. Saying, I know you have other things to do. And with half of blogs being just people's personal opinions, nobody says who you are to make this statement and as you didn't you say, I don't need to hear every
0: yeah. person's opinion. I, I'm like, who are you? And why <laughs> should I find your opinion more valuable yeah. than somebody else's? She so definitely for have short, to you would stay with it. So I have a couple more, more sins to talk about. How, how are we doing on time? I don't really have a watch or wear a watch. We have about 10, 15 more minutes, or are we? At least 20. 20, okay. So sin number five is being unfind or six. Sorry, we skipped the irresponsible one because we already did that. It's being unfindable. And, and somebody commented that this doesn't really seem like a sin, and I agree. You know, it's, it's kind of a sin of omission rather than commission. But I believe it's a sin that bloggers commit against themselves, and I'll explain why so recently i I was uh actually like last year I was helping Rahel Bailey move her content into WordPress from expression engine a lot of migrants uh leaving that platform I guess <laughs> but um so so as I was there's really no script that's readily available to automatically transport all the posts, so I copied them one by one there was only about hundred or two hundred or something, and it was just easier uh so as I was copying them, I ran into all kinds of podcasts that she'd recorded, other great content, and I was thinking, man, there's a lot of great content on this site, but it's totally hidden. And, and I myself have like over a thousand posts on my site, and once they slide off the homepage, they may as well slide into the garbage because nobody ever goes there, uh, except people who search for a specific topic and land on your site through that search and the match. But by and large, it seems, wrong to just put so much energy into writing you know, write this great article and then two weeks later when it's no longer in your homepage, page delete it almost I mean it may as well be deleted because nobody reads it nobody finds it so how can you make your content findable now granted I, I'm kind of approaching this from the idea that your blog posts are more than just you know news type of stuff because yesterday's newspaper pretty much lines bird cages, right it's Nobody, nobody cares about newspaper two weeks ago, and, and if a blog is has that same focus, then sure, you know it's not even an issue. But if you're writing substantial posts, content that you think is worthy of preservation and worthy of being read later, uh, you want to somehow make it findable. There are f- a few ways that you can do this. There's the the easy way um, of just using built-in techniques within the blog. For example, tagging it with certain tags and then those tag, tags become links that pull together everything else tagged with that same tag. Nothing you know, new there. Or categories works the same way. Uh, another really good technique, I think, is, is to have a series of related posts below your posts. So there are these plugins you can add to your blog that will take and try to match keywords of previous posts. So that if somebody lands on your site because they're searching for that topic, they not only get your post, but they get all other posts below that that kind of have that same keywords. And I think that works well. Although sometimes you look at the related posts and think, how is this related? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, you can also create lists of top 10. For example, I have, I have some student-oriented posts on my site. I have at least a dozen of them. Every time a student contacts me and says, Uh, My teacher uh, gave me the assignment to go interview a professional technical writer. Hey, Mark. And so has, uh, well, I'm sure you're familiar with that type of assignment and that sort of thing. Well, I have a lot of posts on my site or podcasts that are geared towards students. How can you link them all together and present them in a list so that people can find them? Um, And there's actually a link management tool within WordPress, and I imagine other blog platforms, where you can create custom lists. So I also have a, a top 10 list of my favorite posts, which I just sort of hastily put together, but you can create your own list based on topic and try to keep track of your classics that way. You can also automate it so that your most popular posts are automatically aggregated based on the number of comments, the number of hits, the number of uh, links back to that post. Um, when I do that though, my most popular posts are posts on uh, grasshoppers that look like aliens and an image gallery <laughs> plugin and, and some other, just a WordPress keynote that I listened to once. Not really what I want to be known for and branded <laughs> by. So, especially the grasshopper one, if you search for grasshopper and an, if you do an image search for grasshopper, I'm like number two, because I had a cool picture and you know I photoshopped it well. <laughs>
3: Those people that have a lot of cameras <laughs> <demo> around. <laughs>
0: So, <laughs> it is to be honest the grasshopper is one of those weird multicolored ones that really looks bizarre And it's like you would go to the internet to try to find out what kind of grasshopper it was I think it's a Georgia thubber or something or lubbers somebody Mentioned so so there, there are those techniques. There's also Something you should automatically do you want to be able to make your content findable in as many formats as possible So you write it on your blog, but then you push it out to Facebook, to Twitter, and to email at least. And if you can think of others, do that as well. And you can easily push it out to Twitter. Well, you just push out the link title to Twitter uh, through a service called Twitterfeed.com, which links a feed, an RSS feed, to a Twitter account. So every time you publish on your blog, it sends out something on Twitter. Uh, And and you can have Facebook pull in your latest tweets, if you want, or latest feed. And then email is something you can activate through a service called FeedBurner. But the idea is that you get your content out into as many formats as possible. Beyond this, though, what you really want to do is make your content search engine optimized. And this is is a page from Google Analytics for my site. And it shows that most of the people, 17,000 of them, find it through Google Organic. Do you know what organic means on the, in Google terms? It means non-paid search results, natural search results. Uh, and if you look at the others like Yahoo, Bing, they're also on there. They're almost nothing in comparison to Google. But most of the people find your site by searching for it. So it makes sense then that you would write your content in a way that is search engine friendly so that you're found more. Because the more you're found, the more people are gonna subscribe to your site, the more influence you get and so forth when people become followers. But writing your content from a search engine optimized point of view can be somewhat of a predicament. Because what people would search for may not be the most literary phrasing of something. So, I mean, think of the searches you do. You, 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 you probably just want some very basic information about something, not some clever little title. And so it becomes somewhat of a, a predicament, predicament whether you kind of sacrifice your, your style to try to increase your search engine ranking. But there's another side to this kind of uh, problem, and, the, and these proponents say, well, if you just write good content, people will link to that content and whatever they say in their little link to that content matters infinitely more than anything you yourself do on your site. So these are called trackbacks or just linkbacks, whatever, to your, to your content, these, these matter a lot more. For example, uh, coming back to this WordPress little post I had written about this keynote, I attended this WordCamp conference, and I was trying the whole live blogging thing where I'd blog as people were speaking and I wrote four posts that day and one of them some other, some other person in the conference found and linked to and when I searched for WordPress and, and these topics the only one that ever appeared was that one that the person linked to so if you get people linking back to your content because it's so good and so compelling then it makes it findable permanently back, his let's say you have a blog and you link to something on my blog And in your link text like in a post that you write let's say uh, you know if you wrote uh, well let's say you wrote you know tom is a great wordpress consultant and you have wordpress consultant in in a link then when people search for wordpress consultant my site is more likely to rise up than if you hadn't yeah Yeah, I mean, for starters, you're pumping out a lot of content onto the web. I mean, it's this content engine where you're constantly producing keywords like that. And and second, it's architected in a way that's search engine friendly. Things aren't nested into tables. When you have content that's like six tables down, it makes it harder for search engines to find it. Uh, Good blog platforms make your latest content rise to the top and they avoid duplicating it so definitely keep search engine optimization in mind and Jacob Nielsen agrees that people find you through searches. Um, you know, the search engine optimization is a whole field in and of itself. Hey Mark, hey. you got a question. What about? Can we go back? Mm. The, the phrases that I find people using, like there's a business case is a phrase that yeah. I've not been including that turned out to be very important, so I started adding it. But yeah. So, so you're just adding popular keywords down at the bottom. Is it in the code, or is it, it's visible to the, to the user? Uh, it's actually visible to the user. Yeah. Are they links, or are they just keywords? Just keywords. Yeah.
3: Not, it's sort of it's kind different. of
2: a poor man's yeah.
0: way of doing it. But. Well, are you familiar with the concept of tagging in WordPress? I mean, th- these, uh, this idea of having tags is, is similar to that. Where you have you tag your content with various keywords, and and uh, hopefully you use tags that like Technorati uses or something. But I do that all the time, and that's becoming really common. Although the one difference there is that with a, with an official tag, it links to every other post that has that same tag, whereas you're just putting basic keywords. So search engines aren't dumb though. I mean, if you're if you're if it thinks you're gaming it, say you you just repeat the same word like six times or even if you you know change the font to white you know so it doesn't appear that you doing. it they, they understand that and how close you come would depend to the danger line would depend how many times you're repeating the keywords uh, I think what you're doing is probably just fine as long as you're not going ballistic and having like 75 keywords all very close because because if Google doesn't like that, it could be harder to get back on Google's good side. But so,
2: so how do you tag it? When you so see you tag it
0: the there's a, you know, uh, WordPress has a f- tags field, you just add them free in a free form way. If you want to be really picky, you could do a structured setup where you're just using tags consistently. But, but the reader does not see that. No. no, the reader sees this. This is a way he or she can navigate to other posts on the same topic. So if I'm writing a post, for example, is uh, from a link? no, it is a link. It is a oh, link. Okay. Yeah. Do you want me to just show you? Yes. Uh, I could bring it up. Um, give this a minute, and while it's coming up, I'll I'll go f- go for it. So if you ever want to work with WordPress locally, something called WAMP server allows you to. To, to start it up. There's also another plugin that you might find useful, though not. I'm not so confident that I should recommend it. But it's called All-in-One SEO Plugin. And this All-in-One SEO Plugin, it hold on, I can't think and do two things at the same thing. Okay, this All-in-One plug, All-in-One SEO Plugin allows you to take a put a title that only Google sees, um, and a title that only your readers see. And yeah, one second. We'll see if this actually works. So let me explain the the all-in-one SEO plugin. It, it gives you this field at the bottom where you can take and put a totally different title there that your readers will never see, but when people search for your blog, this is what this is a title that's indexed into Google. And I had that in my in my recommendations until a friend of mine who works for WordPress. Joseph Scott said that Google doesn't like that; that it sees that as trying to game it, and so I probably shouldn't recommend it. Sorry, I can't get to it. Anyway, it's nothing really that exciting that I was going to show, but um yeah. Uh, so
3: the whole metadata concept is out the window.
0: Yeah, basically, uh, the search engines don't trust metadata. You can put all the keywords you want, and people have been been gaming that for so many years that it's just. It's
3: just.
0: I mean. In the past, you would put all these metadata keywords in this, in this metadata section, but people abuse that so much that search engines don't trust it. They really trust links from other sites pointing to your content. And I've had people say, well, how do I get other people to link to my site with all the right keywords so that I rise up in the ranks, right? Because you wanna, if you're not in the first three, like uh, 60% of the people won't click on you if you're not in the first three results. So there's actually some gimmicks that I think work well. Recently, a spa company uh, had this little promotion where they were, they were going to give free two years of free spa treatments to somebody who wrote like the best spa posts mentioning their site, which is kind of weird and shady, but uh, heck, I think it worked pretty well because my, my wife almost did it, right? And I, <laughs> she just ran out of time. But if you can make some kind of competition um, where somebody links back to your site, that, that will work. Or just write really good content, of course, but, but some people ask me about link farms, link exchanges. It doesn't really work. Um it doesn't, it doesn't work in a good way. And there's also this concept of page rank. So every web page on the internet has a rank, nine being the highest. And if the New York Times, for example, links to you, then that link to you weighs and matters so much more than, you know, Ralph's summer vacation blog website link. So. So a couple
1: questions yeah. just for your opinion, one is what do you think about Bing versus Google? Do you think that they're going to make an inroad? I actually like it. Uh,
0: uh, I haven't used Bing that much. I mean I tried it a couple, th- I, I go- okay I know this sounds terrible, I Googled my name to see if it would come up <laughs> no. and it didn't really come up whereas it comes up in Google. So maybe, maybe that tells me something, I don't know. But I haven't used it as much to know.
1: Tell you what, they're mapped. Thing is so really? Google it comes up and gives you directions from all directions. I like that. Yeah? Now, my other one is, and I know there's people in this room that are really into Twittering and yeah. tweeting. What's your opinion? Is that a fad that's on its way out? I mean,
2: but, is there real uh, value in it?
0: There's a recent study, something like 60 or 70 percent of the people on Twitter also have blogs. So uh-huh. I think for a lot of people, um, they use, yeah, Twitter as a way to promote, or they're just online people. They're just people who, I mean, I'm on Twitter, and I'm so not I'm on it as much followed as-
1: followed by these 20-year-old girls that are getting arrested.
0: Really? You Wait, you wanted to get followed by Twitter? No, I don't. Oh, <laughs> you get these notes
1: that Mary Beth is now following <laughs> and I go, who's Mary Beth, and I click it, yeah. it and it tells me to mosey along. So that's <laughs> the <right>.
0: Well.
2: <laughs> Thank God. Thank
0: Twi- Really, if you want to if you want to reach all your audiences, you should go into every online format you can, and you can automate your blog posts so the titles are automatically thrown across across Twitter. But and I do that, but uh, you really should tweet lots of other things as well, so you're not just uh, syndicating your content. But what about all the people on Facebook too? You could say the exact same thing about them. You know, should I worry about them? Yeah, of course. That's part of your audience. Some people are only on Twitter. For example, uh, Kirsty Taylor in Australia, really smart person, presents a lot at the STC. She doesn't use an RSS reader. She uses Twitter, and then she, I think she has sites bookmarked. So she says that she will go and check out my site every few days, or, or my wife's site. She likes my wife's blog better than mine. And she'll go and read that every few days, but she doesn't use RSS feed. She's, she basically uses Twitter. And I think a lot of people are like that. They're saying, you know, RSS, it's it's, become overrun by, by my 2,000 feeds. I can't see anything. I'm gonna create a list within Twitter of only the people who I really wanna stay connected to. And if you're not just pushing your content out there, you're losing out. So, And if you're not on Twitter, you're also losing out. Just kidding. <laughs> That's another.
1: I make one tweet or whatever you call it, one.
0: It's, it's kind of a mindset that I go in and out of, to be honest. I, when I'm happy, I'll tweet a lot. When I'm not, I won't. So.
2: Is, this, <laughs> is this why you have no time?
0: No, no. I have no time because, well, you know what? This leads into another thing, but blogging <laughs> takes up a lot of time, to be honest. It's almost like a part-time job. When I'm doing WordPress projects for people, I, I find it really hard to fit posting it. But this month is actually Nano Rimo, and Pomo. have you heard of those? <laughs> okay, National Novel Writing Month, that's how they abbreviate it. The goal is to write 50,000 word novel, not page, 50,000 word novel this month, right? And Pomo is National Blog Posting Month, which is to write a post every day without any, any consideration of the length. And so I've been trying to do that this month, and it can take anywhere between a half hour to like three hours to write a blog post. Mm-hmm. And if you try to do that every day after you come home from work, yeah, don't it doesn't leave a lot of time for other things.
2: You, you so your answer is yes. yes then. Yeah. Is that Correct That's why you don't have any time.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Blogging <laughs> consumes most of my free time. So. I haven't even addressed frequency, but if, if you have a blog that you don't update more than like once every two weeks, it starts to look really stale. In fact, Authorit recently launched a blog. I love that they use WordPress. They branded it beautifully, and they were off to a good start. And then three somebody, I blogged about it. I was like, check it out. You know, Authorit's got a new blog. Uh, they're entering the blogosphere. Everybody else should join. You. And somebody found my posts and they visited their site and left a comment saying they haven't updated that thing in three months, you know? And I'm like, wow, it really starts to look bad. Have a blog that you're not updating looks worse than, uh, than not having a blog at all. Makes it look like, oh, we're on vacation or uh, you know, we laid off our company or you know we haven't been doing anything exciting. So, so uh, trying to find that time is by far uh, the biggest challenge. If you have like a bus ride in the morning Works great. Or if you find a time to write, works great. But really, to be a successful blogger, I think you have to have kind of an inner dedication about the purpose of blogging. If you just feel that it's this kind of waste of time, it's never going to take off. Or if you're in a, an environment where your wife or, or husband is always like, you know, turn that off, you know, come over here, you know, why are you wasting your time? You're not on the blog again, it's going to be really difficult. Uh, which platform? Yeah, so which platform? Okay, so I, I think that everybody should choose one of the two WordPress type of blogs, and I can tell you why. I don't mean to be a WordPress like little fanboy, but there's two flavors of WordPress, WordPress.com and WordPress.org. And if you don't want to deal with code, if you don't want to screw up your site and suddenly you know, tinker around with it and find that you broke it, then go to WordPress.com. At any time, you can export all of your content out of there into a special little XML file and put it into some other platform, uh, as long as they can import that. You can always move it to another WordPress site. Uh, a lot of people choose Blogger, but only because it's supposedly simpler. But somebody told me that uh, they did a study on usability and found that WordPress was actually easier to use than Blogger. It just gives you more, more power and options. And if you wanna customize it and brand it and and have it all your own, then go to a wordpress.org. There's also movable type, but um, they kind of tanked a few years ago when they converted to a paid model, and now they kind of converted back to a free model, but but um, they don't have the momentum. But but back to wordpress.org versus .com, it's kind of like the difference, Matt Mullenweg says, he's the founder, between rent, between owning your own home or renting an apartment. So with wordpress.com, it's like renting an apartment, right? you don't really have freedom to knock down the walls and do what you want but at the same time you don't have to worry about backing it up or upkeeping it whereas with your own you do. Uh,
3: What's the current best
0: location to find good blogs? What's the best place to find good blogs? You know there's something whenever I read something that I like I usually subscribe to it. I have a lot of blogs and I could export what's called an opml file from my google reader and you could import it and you could see like 700 blogs or I don't even know how many I've got but uh I I once started a directory that was a wiki that I would help uh, encourage people to add to and it kind of died and got vandalized and I don't even know what the status is anymore the The cool thing about here's what I really like about blogs, and I think that's it's going to overtake the print medium uh, really quickly, or at least eventually. With blogs, I open up Google Reader, I'm looking for something interesting to read. I scan down the list of titles, and maybe I scan for 20 or 30 titles before one jumps out at me. But one will jump out at me because I'm subscribed to so many blogs, eventually one person is going to write something of interest to me whereas with a print magazine I'm limited to 10 articles and if none jump out at me that's it that's the end of the rope. there's not a whole lot that I can choose from and usually you're I honestly I don't even know where you... There, there's no directory that, I will be happy to send you my list of blogs but Oh thank you <laughs> Oh great point thank you Okay, so there's a guy, Kawasaki, has this little invention called alltop.com. ALL. A-L-L it's like all the top blogs, and it's by category. And there is a technical writing category. And when it first came out, I, I actually emailed him and said, how'd you pick these? Because there's something in here that I've never even heard of. Right? And he, he told me that actually, he told me the name of the person, and I corresponded with her, and uh, she's like a business analyst for something, I can't remember what. But, um, and, I, and I gave them some suggestions. You can <clears throat> give them suggestions on, on who should be added or removed. But alltop.com lists like the top 30 blogs, or I should say lists 30 blogs. It's kind of presumptuous to say top. <clears throat> you
1: just mentioned Delicious, right? Yeah, yeah t- talk about that. We're, we're looking at, it's an indexing tool,
0: right? Yeah, so Delicious is a social media tool where you, you add a tag to some, or you add something to a tag, a site to a tag, and everybody else who's using that same t- tag also sees the sites that are added to that tag.
1: If you were creating a wiki that's going to become a ginormous, definitive wiki in a particular area, would you consider Delicious as a useful tool for tagging content within the wiki, especially if you were looking at taking like a taxonomy and <coughs> morphing it into an ontology
0: at some point? You know, I. I I don't even know if I totally understand the question. <laughs> no, honestly, I'm not a big, delicious user. I've pl- I played around with it. We're I like just it, don't,
2: free.
0: yeah. Yeah, I think it would be great if it fits into, your, into what you can use. I think wikis are really, I'm excited about wikis right now. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of like move, trying to move away from help authoring tools and into wikis. And one of the things I discovered at least about MediaWiki is that you can, add a category, you can like tag your media wiki pages. You can essentially add tags to them. And then any other pages that have that same tag will show up, only they don't call them tags, they call them categories and namespaces and things. But but there's different ways, I'm sure different wikis have different classification systems that, that help you make sense of the jumble of information that, that they're predisposed to. I don't know enough about the project you're describing though, so.
1: Well, I, I want to recruit
0: you for it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what,
1: what's your favorite?
0: You well, talk to me about it later, and, and I'll be happy. I want to learn more about it. I don't really understand. Is this something? Um,
1: it's
0: called the TC Bach. Oh, the Bach thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a gr- very ambitious thing. I'm not trying to, trying to knock the Bach at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, though, when it comes to gathering a body of knowledge, that Jeffrey Sauer has already done that with the TCEserver.org collection of articles. I don't know if you played around with that, but he is an indexer, almost. He's, like a prof- he's a professional, a professor at University of Iowa. Brilliant, technically. Like, he codes his own CMS, I think. Um, and he goes through and just, like, every interesting article, that he finds on the web, he indexes into this site.
1: That's one person. So if we, evolve, oh, well, we, get got, one we get the whole, oh, he's got.
0: Yeah, he's got a team of people. I tried to do something similar with with uh, something that came out called uh, Publish2.com. So I don't know if you've heard of this. Have you heard of the concept of content curation? So it's a terrible verb in my opinion, but this idea where you find something cool on the web and you're like collecting links and and trying to gather that content and share it with others. So the New York Times recently did this. They have journalists who are always looking for the top stories, right? Well, they needed some kind of platform where when they find a story, they add it to this pool of links and other people who are subscribed to that pool of links see these links floating by. So I said, we need something like that for technical communication and So I went to the site published 2 with the digit.com and I said, we want to create a technical communication news channel. And they did and they're like, sure, go for it. And uh, <clears throat> I have maybe 20 people who actually contribute every time somebody, every time you come across a cool article, you click a little bookmarklet link in your browser toolbar and it adds it to the site. Or if you're in Google reader and you click share, it adds it to the site. So if you go to writer river, writerriver.com, you can see the list of that. Or if you go to publish too, you can see the list of articles. But the problem with the body of knowledge, in my opinion, is that the web is is, is so... I mean, it's changing so rapidly and things are being added. You need a faster mechanism to try to gather that content. But I don't know enough about the body of knowledge, honestly. I, I, I think that...
2: Uh, we have a vision. So we're, we're, sure. at <laughs>
0: we're at 20 till. Okay. <clears throat> so... I'll just be brief about my last point. Uh, and no, and and, and uh, I no. Honestly, w- when it comes to <clears throat> focuses and presentations, my goal is not to try to give a presentation, but to try to like fit with what you're interested in. So I don't want to try to like just get through a slide. I want to try to get through questions that you have and, and ideas that you have. So I don't mind just scrapping this last slide. It's pretty commonsensical, or common sense anyway. Uh, Basically, you listen and and, and allow comments. Is there any other questions that we want to pursue that you want me to answer? Yes. Would you say WordPress gives you more um, control over your design and your content versus like Yeah, does WordPress give you more design and control? Yes. Blogger tends to put all of the code into one big file. You can still brand and edit it, but it's a lot harder. WordPress is a lot easier. And as far as comparing WordPress to movable type, movable type requires you to like, generate your whole files every time you want to see the update. It's kind of hard to explain. Whereas WordPress, uh, you don't have to do that. So you, I actually have a designer friend at work who, who used to be a movable type kind of fan and switch to WordPress because every time he would change the CSS file in movable type and he wanted to see how it looked, he had to like regenerate the site and it was taking forever. So yeah, but then again, uh, I mean I, Word, WordPress is, I think it's the best platform out there, but if you do the self-hosted version, you, you will be subject to like bugs and so forth in plugins because it has this huge community of people developers all over the world creating these plugins that add functionality or themes and they don't always stay in sync with the latest version of WordPress. I mean I contributed a contributed a page of of how to information for WordPress to their to their wiki site about a year and a half ago and I haven't gone back to update it. And the plugins are the same way, so just kind of beware with what you install. <laughs> does
3: anybody ever throw anything away?
0: Does anybody throw anything away from a wiki from online?
3: You just forever, you just
0: collect. You know, there's a new field that's coming out called content strategy. And I was just reading a book by Kristen Halverson on this very topic. And she's, she's very strong, she has a strong opinion that, yeah, you do need to inventory your content and throw out the junk that's cluttering up your other message because more content is more maintenance. It's, it's I mean, more dilution, well, but... the differentiate between
3: what's written really uh, and what was just written? That's, that's
0: the, but the, pro- the problem is, though, I, mean, I have 1,200 posts to go back through. Yeah. You know how long it would take me to, like, inventory yeah, all my you, posts? You
3: could based on the number of hits. Like, if something didn't yeah. get X number of hits, it yeah.
0: You could. That would be a smart thing. To look at your most... That, that's, that's a great point, actually, to... To that's approaching a, it. To
1: go back to your earlier point about Rahel Bailey, where she had all that great content wasn't getting hit. Yeah. And you might throw away something that's like a gem. Yeah. Simply because you accidentally uh, buried
0: it. There's a. The old school mindset is like, the more content, the better, or more hits and more traffic. But the content strategist will say, no, that's, you know, you really need to, oh, to look I'm at it. I'm being buried
3: in it. I'm being buried in content. Yeah. And I have to make decisions all the time. Well. well What do I really want to put
0: my mind to here? Yeah, well, as a reader, usually just look at the the homepage of a site, you know. Right. I I don't know. I I need to go through my site. The problem is a lot of times you will take one position, and then, like, maybe a year later, you no longer believe that, but people still think you believe it. I once called Darren Barefoot. He's a blogger in Canada on something he had said about podcasts. I said... You said in this post, you know, that you thought podcasts were going to tank. You know, what are you, what are you saying? And now you're contradicting yourself with this latest post. He's like, ah, oh, I hate getting pigeonholed and things. It's like just because I wrote it once doesn't mean I'm married to it forever. I, have a at the top. <laughs> I changed
3: my
0: mind. <laughs> he, he cranks out like five posts a day. I swear. So I don't know how he. I don't know how he keeps Would up.
3: There, there?
0: Darren Barefoot. He's a, I've met him. He's a really great guy. He's he's, he's uh, smart, fun to talk to. His blog, is, his blog is a splatter blog, by the way. You asked me about splatter blogs. His blog is all over the map, and he's successful. So if you if you see Darren Barefoot and you like his blog, go for it. It's
2: like a love bug on my windshield. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Tom, last question. Tom, what, yes. what is the, in your mind, the chief benefit? What have you found to be the chief benefit <clears throat> of
0: blogging? What is the chief benefit of blogging? So uh, this is a weird question because I find so, myself... I find myself here, I just entered the field of technical writing in 2004. And I got my start here. This is where I started becoming a technical writer. And blogging has seemed to like make my career take off. I feel like I've gotten jobs where others wouldn't. For example, I got a job all the way in Utah without being in Utah. That's really hard to do. I was on vacation there and so forth for a while to interview, but still, hard to, try, hard to, to do that. And I feel like I beat out other candidates because employers come to my site and they're like, wow, this guy's passionate, you know, you can get a sense of his, his energy and enthusiasm. So there's the job market. Uh, visibility is something, I don't really know what to do with it, but when you blog a lot, everybody knows you and, and bloggers know each other and so forth, but uh, it, it creates a tremendous amount of visibility. People ask you to speak at different places and I wish people just sent me money and so forth, but that hasn't <laughs> happened. <laughs> so. So there's the job, competitive edge in the job market. There's the visibility. And the third one is that it makes my job fun. I think technical writing, you have to admit, at times can be boring. But if I write a post about it, it gets me thinking about it, analyzing my day, and anal- trying to figure out, you know, what do I think about this? And I write about wikis and then people from the community will add comments that often makes me rethink my thoughts or that adds to it. So, and to see these little, comments trickle in through the day actually is great because then I'll be like, ah, oh, somebody commented on this and it'll liven me up for a little bit. So it makes my job fun. So those are the three benefits that I've experienced from blogging. And I think it can really be something. So was
2: competitive
0: edge, what was the second? Competitive edge, visibility, visibility, and engagement, fun engagement. If you haven't started, it's not for everyone, right? But if you, if you want to try blogging you know go to wordpress.com blog about anything for the first month brand a focus and see if it's for you some people it just doesn't fit what they want to do but if you if you feel like an inner motivation to write and you want to you know have a venue to publish and to gather feedback it can be a great great medium for that so my blog is i'd rather be writing.com and or you can search my name tom johnson to find me And I'd be happy to, uh, you know, give you any more advice about WordPress, about blogging, about podcasting. I'm also recording this. uh, Hopefully it'll record well. Because I know that even though there are 20 people here, 15 people here, three or four hundred people will download this. So uh, I'd be happy to, you know, answer any questions there. I really am glad that you guys invited me to come speak. And, And so thank you. So I'm driving back home now that the presentation is over and I am on my way back to Orlando and I just thought that I should have a few follow-up thoughts to comment on how I thought the presentation went. I thought the presentation went alright and actually an interesting thing happened during the presentation. It started off kind of mediocre to be honest. I, I didn't really feel like I was connecting with the people. I wasn't really sure how many of them were interested in the topic in the first place. Only maybe two or three people out of the the 13 or 14 there actually had blogs. And I wasn't sure if the others were just kind of there to support the chapter or were interested in blogging. and. I didn't see a lot of interest in their faces, so I I felt like this was a concern as well because I, I just wasn't really into the topic either. Um, I wasn't really feeling the, the flow and feeling the connection with the people. So I, I tried to you know get more questions from them or to ask them things and to go in the direction that they were interested in going. And I even skipped from sin number one, being fake, up to sin number five, being irresponsible. I mean, there's really no order to them. It's not like <clears throat> it's not like I had to go in a specific order. Uh, I just jumped ahead because that was where the discussion was relevant right then, and then I jumped back, and I didn't even end up talking about the seventh sin because we got onto another topic. And where where my presentation actually got interesting was about a half hour or 40 minutes into it when I started to get more and more questions from the audience and then just went in that direction rather than trying to go through my slides. And I could really feel like things took off at that point. I stopped worrying about where I was in the presentation and just tried to focus on the information, the topic, the discussion that had developed while I was there. And that right there it was almost a defining moment for me because I think all presentation should be like that. Somebody later uh, commented to me that she really enjoyed just hearing me think or watching me think as I was presenting. And I, I I am flattered that somebody would say that. But I also think that's true. When I hear speakers that I really like, I just like hearing how that person thinks and processes information and I mean that's almost part of what this these meta meta bookends are doing with this podcast as well but uh uh, I don't really know how you get to that point in a presentation at what point do you how do you how do you move in the direction away from your your pre-planned material on your slides to where you've got the audience's real questions and concerns and they're out there on the table and you're thinking about them with them in a participatory discussion that you're both leading and engaging at the same time. I don't really know how you do that, but but at least in this presentation I think I got to that point. It took me a long time to get to that point though. It, it I mean it took like 40 minutes before I felt like we were actually at the point where the readers were or the listeners were engaged. So I guess it's something to work at and something to be aware of. Maybe it just takes a few primes of the pump with with slides to prepare people and move them in that direction. Strangely, or not strangely, but uh, unsurprisingly, once we hit that, that sort of momentum... I had one more slide to go, the seventh sin being inattentive, which is really just participating in comments, and I didn't even go into it. I said that I wanted to answer their questions, not get through slides. And so I didn't even, I I think I said one sentence about that whole slide, that whole section, which I could have spent 20 minutes on, but instead we didn't go there and nobody cared. Nobody cares if you get through your slides. In fact, I have heard that one technique you can do to increase the appeal appeal of your presentations is to veer away from your slides, to look as if you're going off topic or on a tangent. Whether that's planned or not, I I don't know. But anyway, slides don't matter. People matter. Their questions matter. What they want to know matters. Nancy Duarte, author of Slideology, tweeted something a while ago that I that really struck and stayed with me. She said, Skilled presenters worry about their audience, whereas amateur presenters worry about their slides. Or maybe she said it the other way around—that amateurs are worried about their slides, and skilled presenters are worried about the audience. I think it's really true. I mean, slides are nothing more than little a backdrop for you. They—they don't—they're not a list of notes for you to remember your presentation. Uh, if you're not remembering things, it's probably not important. Anyway, I also got to see some people. So I I mentioned earlier that I was a bit nervous about who would show up and who would not show up. I had one person from my old work show up, and it was great to see her. And she told me about the status of other people, and surprisingly, not a whole lot has changed. And I saw some other old friends, Mark Lewis, Mark Hannigan, and got to talk with them. And really, those those guys are... they're sustainers of this chapter. I also got to meet Christy Leach and get to know her a little better as well. Uh, and and then I had kind of an a appetizer dinner with Mark later. Got to learn all about what he's involved in and how InVision was bought by Quark and what they're doing. Things like that. It's great to hear from Mark and his passion for Ditta. I think overall, though, the STC model had a—I just don't think—is going to be something that moves forward into the future. I mean, and Mark—Mark Mark mentioned this while we were eating. He said, "I don't want this to turn into a long discussion about the STC," which this totally could. But you know, the more the more that I interact with STC in the chapters, the more I think that it's just kind of going to vanish soon and and while Mark and I were, were eating dinner we are talking about this body of knowledge project uh, while Mark Lewis and I were eating dinner and the question came up if the STC dissolves as an organization what happens to all the content in the techcom and the intercom magazine and journal and that's a really fascinating question That uh, I have no idea what the answer would be but who knows maybe that's what the body of knowledge becomes and and maybe once you remove that paywall then it opens up a lot a lot of doors to people to learn I don't know at any rate it was an interesting discussion it was a great night and I enjoyed it I learned a lot about presenting more than anything else I learned that That if you do not, if you do put aside your focus from the slides and you look to the audience, you will find a moment in your presentation where it no longer becomes about your presentation. You're not worried about presenting. You're engaged in a discussion and you're thinking about things with people out loud. And that's really what engages people. If you can get to that moment and if you can get to that moment early. So that's what I will try to do in my upcoming presentations. Alright, thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if you have any feedback. My site is I'dRatherBeWriting.com Email address is Tom at I'dRatherBeWriting.com Feel free to link back to my post and I'll see it. Put your comments in a comment on a post and I'll see it. Or just drop me an email and I'll try to respond. Thanks for listening.